In Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says in the King James translation that the letter is written to the, to the Ephesian church. Paul, a servant. Now, let me get it. Here it is. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus. At Ephesus is not in the original manuscripts. And um, uh, as a matter of fact, the original manuscripts are left blank. Uh, I was talking to somebody this week that uh, uh, reads Greek texts and goes back and looks at some of the ancient stuff. And he said that in the original um, uh, or the the ancient manuscript that he was looking at, the Codex, uh, well, I don't know how to say it. It'd come out in tongues if I tried. But um, uh, he said that there was uh, in... uh, in that space, in a different writing, a different handwriting, the words at Ephesus. It was supposed to be a circular letter. It was supposed to be a letter that was written for all of the church. It's the last of Paul's letters to the church. He wrote a couple of letters to uh, Timothy and Titus. Uh, from uh, We believe this was, it was written during his Roman imprisonment just shortly before his life was over. And it's a parallel letter to the Colossians. The Colossian letter, for example, deals with a problem. There was a... Um, a new doctrine, a radical doctrine that had uh, it crept into the church. Uh, well, let me just read something. I'm rather than just trying to quote it. I'm trying to save time, but there's no point in that whatsoever, because time never matters to me one way or the other when it come down to it. Colossians chapter two, Paul said uh, in verse sixteen, he said, "Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ." In other words, the Judaism, uh, an element of Judaism had crept into the Colossian church, which is part of the reason that Paul is writing to them. He goes further and tells us a little bit more about the, the wrong doctrine that was uh, taking root in the church of Colossae. Verse 18, let no man beguile you, that means rob or defraud you, of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, speaking of Jesus, from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment, ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. So the wrong doctrine, the heretical doctrine that had gotten into the church at Colossae uh, included, or at least uh, uh, was uh, accompanied by a form of Judaism, or uh, partial Judaism at least, and some kind of voluntary worship of angels or, or spiritual hierarchy of angels and stuff like that. Folks, you'll notice something throughout the, the years. Uh, I know that it's come around a couple of times in the, the time that I've been uh, following the Lord and, uh, and in ministry. And that is the devil likes to draw a lot of attention to himself. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus leaves you to draw attention to him. But the devil tries to draw attention to himself. One of the things the Bible says about the last days is that people will be seduced by doctrines of devils. One translation said, or several translations actually say, doctrines about devils. So a lot of times the devil wants to draw attention to himself by talking about or having somebody teach on uh, demons and demon activity and and stuff like that. Well, Paul addresses that, uh, that issue with the Colossian church, but to the Ephesian church, he talks about some of the same points, the same issues but not trying to correct a problem. It's a, it's a letter that, uh, well, the Colossian church, the theme to the Colossians is Christ, but the theme to the, um, uh, to the, the letter that we know of as Ephesians is the church because he talks about who we are in Christ and the position that we hold as the church, the body of Christ here on the earth.
So I'm going to start here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. That's about as far as we got last time. And I'm not really so concerned. To be real honest with you, there's so much in the book of Ephesians that if we tried to go verse by verse and did it justice, we'd be here through the millennium. Um, so I, that's really not my purpose. My purpose is to hit some high spots and, and to focus on and center on some themes that are important for you and me to know. Doctrinally, the book of Ephesians is, is so full of information that you could take forever talking about every little point. Because Paul, Paul takes a different approach to the book of Ephesians than anything else. I think he knows he's close to the end of his life. He's in prison in Rome. Uh, the only two letters we know of that he wrote after this is one to Titus and one to, Tim- to uh, Timothy, personal letters to people that had been close to him. But otherwise, this is his last letter to the church. And I think he knows his time is short. And apparently, now we've speculated a little bit on this, but you judge it for yourself to see if it makes sense and fits the, the narrative. Apparently, Paul has gone to the Lord to get instruction on how to address the situation at Colossae. what to write to the Colossian church. And as a result, he expands on the things that he got for them to correct their issue and correct their problem and talks about the whole, the broad picture, the big picture of God's plan of redemption beginning to end. And as a result, he tells the church, now this is your place in the earth. Now, think about that. If Paul's leaving, what would be the most important thing for the church to know? who we are and what our place is in the earth. Because if you were alive in the world at the time that Paul was writing these things, you're relying a lot on him for doctrine. There are people that have been raised up and and, uh, operating as ministry gifts, different ministry gifts and so forth, but Paul's the guy. Church tradition tells us that Paul outlived Peter, so at this point in time, Peter may already be gone. John outlives Paul, certainly by some 20, 30 years, uh, 35 years, I guess. And so the time will come when John is looked at as the one that was next to Jesus. But at this point in time, John, I mean, uh, excuse me, Paul is the one that has the revelation of Jesus and is famous throughout the world like nobody else is. So if Paul's going off the scene, what message would he want to give? The one that he wrote to the Ephesians. So let's start. I'm going to cover one sentence this morning. You may think I'm aiming low, but you wait till you hear the sentence. I'm going to cover one sentence this morning. Verses 3 through 14. That's one sentence. Now, in the original Greek, there's no punctuation, but for the, from the grammar and the setup of, the, of the, uh, uh, the way that it's written, it's all one sentence. So I'm going to read it through, and then we'll stop and take a little piece of it apart and talk about it verse 3 blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in christ according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by jesus christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, 
that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom also you trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Now, can I ask you a question? What did you get out of that? There's a lot there. I mean, we can all agree there's a lot there. But what did you get out of it? Well, it was something in there about redemption. And he said, praise God and glory a lot. Now, realize that when Paul wrote to the churches, this is the way these letters were read. As a matter of fact, Paul writes in in the letter that he wrote to the uh, Colossians, he told them that after it's read among them to make sure to give it to the Laodiceans and also read the letter that he wrote to them. Now, we don't know what letter he wrote to them. Some surmise it was this letter because it's not uh, addressed specifically to the Ephesians. And they could be right, but we just don't know for sure. So apparently Paul intended for these letters that he wrote, at least these two, I believe more so, but at least these two, to be read among the churches. Now, how would they read them? And what would they get out of them? Folks, the first point I want to make to you is you have such an advantage over the early members of the church because Revelation is progressive. Not only do we have a record of it, I mean, it's not like they took it and Xeroxed this thing off and gave everybody a copy. So not only do we have a record of it, we have the opportunity of hundreds of years, a couple of thousand years actually, to read, to study, to hear from the Holy Ghost, to find out what is God trying to get across to us. And that's what I want to do with a little bit of it this morning. Verse 3. Paul, now one thing I do want you to notice out of this, compare this with uh, things that Paul wrote to the Hebrews and things that Paul wrote to the Romans and things that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. The Corinthians, most of of that letter, he's trying to fix a problem from them because, man, they had problems. But with the Romans, it was all about doctrine. It's all about Jesus has finished the work. We're justified by faith. The foundation of our faith is the word and so forth. This is... Just like Paul has opened up his heart, he's standing there with his hands raised to heaven and he's just glorifying God for his goodness and for what God has done. There's a whole different style to this than other letters. And as a result, some people argue that Paul didn't even write this letter. Well, if he didn't write this letter, whoever wrote it knew Paul better than Paul knew himself and the message that Paul had been given by the Lord. Secondly, if this letter is such different style then we have to ask the question, why would it be different style? See, what happens so often is people get stuck in Romans. People get stuck in the justification by faith, and they think that everything is about the foundation's justification. Notice that Paul doesn't talk about Judaism in the Ephesian letter. Why? Because it's not the big deal that it used to be. Now, there's an element of it springing up in Colossae, as we mentioned before. But most of Paul's troubles and persecution by the Jews is over. He's in prison in Rome, so the Jews aren't concerned about him anymore. They think he's taken care of. 
And in one sense, he is taken care of. What they didn't recognize, though, is that God would use him from prison to affect more churches than he could have ever visited. So they think they won. So it's not such a big deal in the churches, primarily because of the doctrine and the foundation that Paul has laid and some of the other letters that he's written previously and so forth. Now it's like Paul is opening up his heart, opening up, raising his hands toward heaven, and just giving praise to God for his goodness and his grace and his overwhelming plan of redemption. And that's what this is all about. That's what the Ephesian letter is about. It's about who you are in Christ, who the church is, because of God's great plan of redemption. So he starts talking about God. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath, everybody say hath, that's past tense, already done, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, folks, so many times the church wants to substitute the blessings of Abraham for these spiritual blessings. But as we mentioned in a service here recently, Galatians 3.13 says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So that the blessing of Abraham, that the blessing of Abraham, here's the reason, verse 14 of Galatians 3, here's the reason why Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Not that the blessing of Abraham might be superseded or substituted for by Jesus but that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, what is the promise of the Spirit through faith? These spiritual blessings. So it's not an either or, but the church has done that. See, the church has said, well, the Jews have temporal blessings, we have spiritual blessings. Well, actually, we have spiritual blessings and we have temporal blessings. We have spiritual blessings that enforce the temporal blessings of Abraham that belong to the Jews. Now, you can believe that or reject that. It's up to you. But that's what the Bible says. But notice it says, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Now, folks, if you don't understand the heavenly places, you're not going to understand the spiritual blessings. I think, personal opinion, I think that Paul knows that the letter that he's writing to the Ephesians and that's supposed to be passed around to the other churches as well, that we have record of too, I believe that Paul knows that it is more full, more packed, more jam-packed with truth than anything that he's ever written before. And this is the ultimate in operating by faith as far as Paul is concerned because he knows nobody's going to get this in one reading. He knows that the Holy Ghost is going to have to use this. He's going to have to take it and, and use it for th throughout the years or whatever period of time God deems it worthy and unveil it to people little by little by little by little. But one of the themes that he starts off with is the heavenly places. He mentions heavenly places four times in this letter. Let me show them to you. First one is in chapter 1 in verse 20. It's talking about the exceeding greatness of God's power that works in, his, in the believer, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Notice the word places is in italicized in both verses. It's literally the word heavenlies, in the heavenlies. Now, what heavenlies would we assume that he's talking about? Well, at this point, we could assume that he's talking about the right hand of the Father. The next was in chapter 2 and verse 6, talking about how that we were quickened together with Christ 
and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. Notice places is in italics again. It's the same word, heavenlies. Has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenlies, places in Christ Jesus. So now we're coming to the understanding that he's talking about the right hand of the Father. The third one is in chapter 3 and verse 10. It's talking about the mystery of God that's been revealed by the Holy Ghost to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places, same word, heavenlies, in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Well, the principalities and powers he's talking about are not the powers of God. He's talking about the powers of the enemy. Well, they're not at the right hand of God, Father, are they? The last one is in chapter 6 and verse 12. Paul is talking about putting on the armor of God. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. What are these heavenly places? These heavenly places are the spirit realm. It's not the right hand of God the Father. Now, you are seated at the right hand of God the Father positionally. But what he's talking about here is not the right hand of God, unless the devil has powers at the right hand of God too. I don't believe that would work. So what's he saying? Let's read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the spirit realm. All spiritual blessings in the spirit realm. Now, some people write there, and that's one of the reasons that the church has substituted God's uh, promises of temporal and material blessings as identified through the the blessing of Abraham in the Old Testament for the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. They think that there was an exchange made. Well, nowhere does the Bible say that. The Bible, in fact, says we have a better covenant established upon better promises, Hebrews 8, 6. It does not say we have a different covenant. It says we have a better covenant. It doesn't say we have a substitute covenant. Really, it's a misnomer when, when we call it the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Because there's only been one covenant. The fulfilling of the old covenant, God's covenant with the Jews through the finished work of Jesus, is the completion of the one covenant that he made with Abraham. He doesn't have one covenant with the Jews and one covenant with the church. He's got one covenant with the family of God. God's people under the old covenant were simply the literal descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham. Once Jesus came along, then it became a spiritual family rather than a natural family. But it's the same covenant. He's fulfilled it, and he made it better. Well, what was better about it? Well, we know what the old covenant was. It was the blessing of Abraham that included, to a great degree, provisions, material blessings. What's the new covenant? Being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. And so many times people get religious on you and say, well, that's so much better than temporal blessings. Not when it's time to pay the rent. Go tell your landlord that you're not going to pay the rent this month because you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Folks, there's no less need for finances and material possessions now than there ever was in the Old Testament. Is there? We have the same needs now as before. Well, what, did God just figure out now that you're saved you won't need that stuff? That's not the way it works. It's a better covenant established upon better promises. The promises and blessings of the Old Covenant plus the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, being made a new creature in Christ. Now, what does that mean? It means you're in a new position. It means you're in a new position. 
What position do we have? We have a spiritual position. Before, they didn't. Abraham didn't have a spiritual position. He just had a a covenant partner that was a spirit being. He didn't have a spirit position. But you do now. You do now. What does that mean? That means you have authority to operate with God's help and under God's blessings, umbrella of blessings and authority so that you can carry out his will here on the earth. Abraham was totally dependent on God doing everything. Sure, Abraham would put his hand to things. The Jews would, would, would work according to what the Bible tells them to do, and, but God would bless the work of their hands. But now we have authority to use the power and the authority and the, and the blessings that are, that are inherent in the name of Jesus to carry out God's will on the earth in a much greater way. Now, Moses is a good example Old Testament example of the New Testament believer. Moses talked to God face to face. He understood things about God and experienced things about God that nobody else could. That's a type of the New Testament believer. Well, when it came time for Moses to do something on behalf of the children of Israel to carry out God's will, he cried out to God. When he's standing at the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is bearing down on him, he cries out to God and says, Lord, we need help. And God says, What are you crying out to me for? Now, I've said this before, but folks, that seems like a perfect time to pray for me. Uh, Well, I'm in trouble. You brought us out here. The people we're leading are about to be slaughtered by Pharaoh's army. We've got a, a, a body of water in front of us that we can't get across. When else am I supposed to pray? But God's point is, you don't have to ask me, carry out my will in my name. So he told Moses what to do. He said, stretch forth your hand over the water. He took the rod that represented the name of Jesus. It was an Old Testament example of the name of Jesus. He stretched it out over the water and the water parted. Not because it didn't happen when God moved. It happened when Moses moved. That's what this is telling us, folks. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. That place is a a spiritual place is a place of authority. It's a place of authority. It's a place of authority. You know, it's, I think so many people, too many Christians, think that God is just sitting in heaven and, and trying to deal with everybody's request because, God, because nobody can do anything on their own. All of it has to be God. It's all the will of God. It's all according to God's plan. Whatever God does is, is what he wants done, and whatever he doesn't want done is not what happens. Can you imagine the line of prayers Every day, if that was the case. That's not what God intended. Now, think of it where your kids are concerned. When your kids are little, they have to come to you for everything. But after your kids start getting some age to them and learn the system, and you do teach them the system around the house and how the family works and so forth, as the kids start getting older, you expect them to operate according to the system, according to what they've been taught. They don't have to come to you and ask, do I have to empty the garbage? When it gets to where you can't balance one more piece of paper on the top of that pile, (laughs) it's time to empty it. Our kids get old enough, they don't ask us for something to eat. They go to the refrigerator and stand there and hold it open for five minutes at a time. (laughs) Why? Because that's part of maturing, it's part of growth. You learn to do things on your own. That's what Paul's talking about. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Can I ask you a question? What should the mature believer... Now, I don't know what you think a mature believer looks like, but you imagine the most mature Christian that you could possibly think of or conjure up in your imaginations. What would the most mature believer that you can imagine pray for? He's not going to pray for God to do things for him because if he's a mature believer, he's going to know the authority that he has in the name of Jesus. So what's he going to pray for? He's not going to pray for the will of God to be done because the word of God is the will of God. He's going to be mature enough to know that. He may pray according to God's plan and purpose as revealed in the word, but he's not going to be asking for God to do something that the word already says belongs to him or he can have. So what's he going to pray for? Folks, I want you to understand something. When you understand who you are in Christ, it changes your prayer life. You do away with all this, God, I want you to do this for me. Please help me here. Because you learn to take the word and say, wait a minute. The word says that I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus who loves me. The Bible says God never leaves me nor forsakes me. So I'm in trouble in this situation. Thank God in the name of Jesus I have victory. What else is there to pray for about that? You'll spend your time praying for more for other people than you ever did. Because they may not know what you know. They may not have found out what you found out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. You've got a place of authority, folks. That place of authority is a spiritual place. And temporally, naturally, you're still here on the earth. You still live here on the earth. But in reality, from a positional standpoint, you've got a place of spiritual authority that's the same as Jesus' place of authority. You're seated with him at the right hand of God the Father. It doesn't even say you're seated below him in close proximity. It says you're seated with him. You're seated with him. What would God the Father refuse Jesus Let's just imagine that God and Jesus are sitting in heaven. God's on the great big throne in the middle. Jesus is on the right hand. And Jesus says, Daddy, I want you to do something for me. God says, no, I'm done with that. You went to the cross. You're done. (laughs) What would Jesus require of his father that God would ever consider saying no to? In fact, the Bible says that everything God has is already Jesus. Well, the Bible says everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. So let's turn that around. Now, when we put it in the terms of the first question, what would God refuse Jesus? Nobody can come up with anything. Nothing, of course. God would never refuse his son Jesus. Anything that he required or desired or whatever. Well, the same thing that belongs to Jesus belongs to you, the Bible says. So what would God refuse you? Oh, a lot of stuff. That's the way we think. But the answer is one and the same. You are in Christ. That means the same thing God would do for Jesus, he'll do for you. The same way God would do it for Jesus, he'll do it for you. Now, how would Jesus operate here on the earth? Is is Jesus having to get permission from God to carry out what he knows is God's will? Jesus have to pray and fast to figure out how to lead the church? 
He knows the will of God. Once you know the will of God, it's simply a matter of acting on the authority that you've been given to carry it out. Why? Because you're already blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. In so many other letters, Paul starts off saying, I hope God, give, I'm praying that God would give you grace, God would give you peace, I would get, that God would do this and the other. Paul starts his letter off right off the bat saying, you've got everything you need. To the church, you've got everything you need. You've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. According, here's why. According as he has chosen us in him, in him, in Christ, he has chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. Now, please notice what it's saying. It's saying God chose you. God chose you before he ever created the universe, before he ever made the sun, before he ever made the moon. He had a plan. And this whole thing is about God's plan of redemption. He had a plan for mankind. Now, whatever was here before, and the Bible gives us some hints about the, the, the uh, world that existed before Adam and Eve. It tells us that there was some kind of world, some kind of civilization, trafficking and business and other things that were taking place that, uh, that Satan had some means of authority, and he decided he was going to rebel against God and exalt his throne above God's throne, and he took a third of the angels with him and so forth. The timing on that and when all that happened, all that we know is it happened before Adam and Eve. It could have happened a little bit before Adam and Eve. It could have happened billions of years before Adam and Eve. We don't know. But whatever that was, God had a plan for you before any of that happened. It's almost like God had some trial runs. Because the Bible says that before the foundation of the world, before he ever made anything, before there was anything that in existence. Now this is where it gets hard for me in my little peanut brain but there had to have been some point in time if it was just for a second there had to be some period of time that God existed that nothing else did he is the pre-existent creator of everything so there had to be at least one moment where there was nothing in existence except him let's imagine that that was just one second In that one second, God devised a plan for man and his redemption. So what did he do? And he made whatever he made. Adam and Eve was not his first run. What was there before that? I have no idea. The Bible talks about ages to come. The Bible talks about in in, uh, Ephesians. Well, let me read it to you. Ephesians chapter 2, it's verse uh, 7. Let me back up to verse 6 since we read, read that before. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness. Toward us through Christ Jesus. Now most of us think of this age and when this age is over. It's, it was done. It's all over. Except for us sitting in heaven for eternity. What are you going to do in heaven for eternity? I mean, eternity is kind of long, isn't it? First picture I ever had of heaven, first imagination, I mean, that I ever had of heaven was 
It would be filled with the praises of God. Somebody in my Sunday school class told me it would be filled with the praises of God. And they, the teacher went on to say something to the effect that we'll spend all of eternity praising God. And I thought, man, I can't think of anything more boring than that. I'm not really a praiser. I'm not a singer, and you don't want to hear me try. And so I'm thinking, man, if eternity is just me singing songs to God, he's not going to like that much. That's just foolishness. God's got a plan for you that will keep you more excited, more energized, more enthused than anything you've ever been involved in in your life. Well, what could that be? I have no clue. I just know it will take him ages to show you. Ages to come. Well, how many ages have there been? Well, we know how many there's been since Adam and Eve, but we don't know how many ages there were before that. We know of one that the Bible intimates or hints at, but there may have been 10 before that. There may have been 100 before that. There may be thousands after this one is over. And it's going to take God every bit of that time Every bit of eternity to show you how kind he is and how good and how gentle he is towards you. That's what this verse says. So before any of that was ever planned, before any of that was ever carried out or any action to to, to carry it out was ever made, God had a plan and that plan was for you to be his child. For you to be redeemed and stand before him holy and blameless. His plan was for you. Now, folks, please understand, this was not his plan when you got saved. This was not his plan for you when you were born into this earth. This was his plan for you before the world was ever created. His plan was for you to be holy, blameless, without sin. Your complete sanctification with him through Christ Jesus according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world and that we should be holy and without blame before him now the word in love I I didn't uh, read the words in love in verse 4 because it really belongs to verse 5 in love having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will in other words, it says that God chose you and he predestinated you. Now, let's talk about predestination for a little bit. If you look in the, uh, I think it's the revised version. There are some other translations perhaps that do as well. But I think it's the revised version that instead of using the word predestinated, they use the word foreordained. Now, we've got to answer some questions, and that is this. If we're going to understand God correctly and properly, we're going to have to answer some questions. And that is, what does predestination mean? The Bible says that God predestined us to be in Christ. It says that he chose us. The words chosen and predestination and election are all part of the the overall doctrine of election. And there's two main thoughts, two schools of thoughts on this. One is that God chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved. They'll use scriptures like this, that we were predestinated. Who's Paul writing to? Well, he's writing to Christians. So that's some will take these verses of Scripture and say, well, that means, therefore, that God has predestined all Christians to be saved. But what about people that aren't saved? That would have to mean that they're predestined to go to hell. Right? And the, the thought, the doctrine of election, it's understood by much of the fundamental 
portion of the church is that God is picking heaven and hell for individuals. Well, you can really run crazy with this idea because if it's all up to God on whether or not somebody gets saved, then what, ma- what difference does it make whether we preach the gospel? Because if God's going to make sure that people get saved, why do we preach? Paul said concerning the preaching of the gospel, he said, I become all things to all men that I might win some. Well, Paul's the one writing this. Does he not know that God's the one picking and choosing? What's he trying to win them for? Now, the problem with predestination and election is most of the church world sees it. And by that I mean, let me define my terms. By that I mean salvation is wholly and, and totally dependent on the will of God, not the will of man. If that's the case, then we have a problem and an answer, something that we have to seriously consider and answer for ourselves if we're going to have a right understanding of God. And that is, why is God not strong enough to bring about his will? Because First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 clearly says that it's the will of God for all men to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. So you're going to have to conclude one of two things. Where the doctrine of election and predestination is concerned. And that is. It is either God's will for everybody to be saved. Like 1 Timothy 2.4 says. And he's not strong enough to pull it off. Or salvation is not solely dependent on the will of God. That's the only two options there is. Are you with me? Which one is it? Well, I'm not going to stand before God and say, God, I don't think you're strong enough to pull off your will. And interestingly enough, the very same group of the church that says that God's picking and choosing who goes to heaven and who goes to hell are the ones that say the will of God is paramount, sacrosanct. Nothing is above the will of God. If God wants it, that's the way it's going to be. Well, what about this? The Bible says that's the way God wants it. God wants everybody to be saved. So how do, we con- how do we conclude this? What do we conclude about this? Well, the word predestination does not mean foreordained. It does not mean predetermined. It does not mean this is the way God has set it up and this is what's going to happen no matter what. It means pre-designed or pre-planned. So what it means very simply is this, is that God planned us. He chose before the foundations of the world through the plan of redemption that he'd already come up with, he chose for all of mankind to be made holy and righteous by the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice that was yet to come. Was yet to come when he planned it has been accomplished through the finished work of Jesus in modern times, 2,000 years ago. He pre-planned for everybody to be saved. Well, he pre-planned it. He made provisions for it. But what's going to make the determination whether or not somebody is saved or not? Their will. Their choice to receive or reject the finished work of Jesus on the cross that accomplished their salvation. Now, if that's the case, then it would make perfect sense that Jesus would tell the disciples and you and me too to go into all the world and preach the gospel. He that believeth and is baptized, that believes and receives, in other words, the teaching of Jesus shall be saved. He that believes not shall be damned. God's not the one making the choice. Man is the one making the choice. So, folks, you need to, yeah, but some, some people say this is where the other side will jump in. They'll say, yeah, but God knows what everybody's going to do. 
Well, yeah. Knowing what somebody's going to do is different than making them do it, isn't it? Haven't you ever shared Jesus with somebody you knew wasn't going to accept it? I've talked to a lot of people like Jesus that I knew there's not a chance in the world that they're going to accept him. Now, I knew it based on the way that they were operating in their lives. God knows it based on absolute truth. So it's a degree of knowledge, but it's still knowledge. Well, what do we do? We still try to get them in. Furthermore, don't you have friends or perhaps loved ones that if you could make the choice for them to get saved, you'd choose for them? Well, that would make you better than God then, wouldn't it? If only you had the power to make that choice, you'd do it. But if God does have the power and he doesn't do it, that makes you better than him. You would be more righteous concerning salvation than he is. Now, I'll let you take that one apart doctrinally if you like. There's only one possibility. There's only one thing that fits the truth of the word. And that is God pre-planned, he pre-designed a means of salvation, a means of righteousness, a means for every person to stand holy and without blame before him. And that means that method, that way, is Jesus and his sacrifice. But it's up to you. It's up to you. Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come. He didn't say, whosoever God wills, will come. He said, whosoever will, let him come. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door of his heart to me, I'll come in and sup with him. It's man's choice. It's man's will, not God's. That's why so much of the praying of the church is foolish and and ineffective. Because so much of the church is praying everything, if it be your will. They're waiting for God's will to be manifest in some natural, temporal, physical manner. So that they're going to know what God's will is. God wills what you will. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Does that make sense? First thing, right out of the, right out of the gate, that's what Paul talks about. God's pre-planned before the foundations of the world. Having predestinated us, again, verse 5, under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did God do this? Because he wanted to. Why did God make a way for you to be righteous before him? Because he wanted to. Why did God make the blood of Jesus a sacrifice, a worthy sacrifice for every person to be born again, no matter where they came from, no matter what they did beforehand? Because he wanted to. Yeah, but when I heard the good news, I wanted to get saved. Well, that's good, but that's not what made it available. It's simply because God wanted to. Now, who did he do this for? Who did he want this for? He wanted it for you. We have a tendency to say, well, God wanted all of mankind to come to him, and I just happened to be born. But he didn't really want me individually. And nothing could be further from the truth. God wanted you as his child. If you were the only living human being on the face of the earth, Jesus would have come for you because it was God's plan. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you. We think we chose God, and in one sense we did. It was our will to accept the work of Jesus 
and to accept the, the free gift of salvation. That was our choice. That was our will. But God made it available because he chose you first and foremost. Do you realize something? Do you realize how, how ineffective salvation is, the finished work of Jesus is for somebody that rejects him? It's only worthwhile for the person who receives. The precious blood of Jesus, the ransom price of all ransom prices is worthless unless you accept. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Two things I want you to see in this. Where he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Here again, Paul's got his hands raised, you know, in, uh, symbolically, I guess. Praising God for his plan of redemption. What this literally means is, through the sentence structure and the grammar and the way that it's set apart or set up. It literally means this. It means in the ages to come, when God's going to show you the riches of his grace and the goodness of his, his, uh, his own nature and the blessings that, that, uh, that we can't even yet imagine, of all of those things, the thing that will be of the utmost praiseworthy is his plan of redemption. Folks, eternity is going to be fun. Eternity is going to be productive. Eternity is going to be fruitful. Eternity is going to be something that you're going to think, wow, and I thought I liked stuff on earth. It's going to be something that brings joy and peace and, and, and well, I hate to use the word feelings because we'll have a different body then and I'm not sure how feelings are going to work. But a, a sense, a feeling of excitement and life like nothing you can imagine. But the greatest thing of all is to recognize that it was God's plan of redemption that brought it about. It's like God's been putting, putting uh, uh, he's been passing time, if you'll allow me to say it this way. It's like God has been passing time, thousands and thousands and thousands of years, to get to the place that he wants things to be. This is not the way he wants things to be. This is not his ultimate goal. Now you might say, well, what's he waiting for then? Why didn't he take us to heaven? Because he's trying to get more and more people in. But that's not his job. That's our job. Our job is to reach them. His job is to work on their hearts. But he doesn't have any hearts to work on if we don't reach them. But this is not the way that God intended things to be. Sure, he knew that they'd go this way. He, he, he prophesied them. He told us, foretold us about how things would go. But this is not what God had in mind. Please understand, this world is not what God planned. The world we're living in today where things are upside down and homosexuality is the end thing. Gay marriage is the end thing. This is not the way God planned it. It's not the way he wants it. It's not going to be the way things are when he's in charge. No matter what other Christian groups say. God's ultimate plan is the un, uh, unspeakable riches and glory in heaven. That's God's plan. That's what he wants for us. No wonder when Paul got a glimpse, he said, I was caught into a place that I didn't have words to speak. I saw and heard things that, that are not lawful. King James says they're not lawful to utter. That's really not what the language means. It means I don't have any words to describe what I saw. And he just got a glimpse. 
We don't know how long he was caught up into heaven, but he just got a little glimpse, a little taste, and he said, wow, I don't know how to describe that. Well, how could you not know how to describe what you saw unless it was so much better than what you saw or have anything as a point of reference here? So when the time comes, Paul says, I'm ready to go. It's better for you for me to stay, he wrote to the Philippians. It's better for you if I stay here, but I want to go because to depart and be with Christ is far better. I'm sure he's remembering when he was caught up into heaven and saw that stuff he can't even relate to here on the earth. He said, I want to go there. I have a firm belief about something, folks, and that is one of the reasons God doesn't show us heaven any more than he does is because you'd be no good for earth if you saw it. What would hold you here? Oh, but we have loved ones. We have things we want to accomplish. Give me a break. They'll join you soon. There's no way. You ever been with a Christian when they went home to be with the Lord? You ever been in somebody's hospital room when they went home and were ready to go? Man, there's a pull on that. It's almost like you got to grab hold of the bedside, the hospital bed, because they start going and you can almost feel yourself going with them. There's an attraction to heaven, folks, that can't be described by anything here on the earth. It's the presence of God. The presence of God draws you. Remember how the Bible says the Holy Ghost, nobody said of the Holy Ghost, nobody can come to him except my Father, meaning the Holy Spirit can draw him. There's a drawing, there's an attraction, there's a pull that heaven has on us. Most of us aren't aware of it because we're living such natural lives. There's a pull to heaven. Paul said, I don't even know how to describe that. To the praise of his glory, the glory of his grace. In other words, the things that God's going to be praised for, for all eternity. It's not going to be a matter of, okay, sing song number 32. It's going to be something that you're going to love and appreciate and experience in heaven so that you will be constantly reminded, if not for God's plan of redemption, I wouldn't be here. If, God, if not for God's chosen plan, plan to choose me before the foundations of the world, I wouldn't even be here. It'll be a constant reminder. It won't be something anybody has to prompt you to praise God about. It'll be a constant thing for all of us because we'll enjoy every second. If there are seconds in heaven, we will enjoy every second of what we're experiencing. Does this make any sense? To the praise of his glory, of, of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. In, uh, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. You remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration? Luke chapter 9, verse 35, I think it is. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and suddenly Moses and Elijah appear. They've been in Abraham's bosom. It's the only place for them to be after the death of their bodies. They've been in Abraham's bosom and they appear before Jesus. Peter gets all excited. He says, man, this is great. Let's build three temples, three tabernacles. One for Moses and Elijah and one for us. Go figure, you know. I guess he's trying to say, I don't ever want this to end. I don't know what he's trying to get to. But suddenly there's a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Here where it says, and again, this is right out of the gate. Paul is not, he's not uh, expounding on any doctrine that he's trying to, to reveal. 
he's just talking about the plan of redemption kind of from an overview standpoint to start with. And he said that we've been made accepted in the beloved according to the praise of the glory of his grace. One translation says it this way, and the, and the language is really accurate on this. It says, we've been begraced in his beloved son. We've been begraced in his beloved son. Just like God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's saying you have an equal standing with that. You have an equal standing with the one that God said from heaven, this is my beloved son. Accepted in beloved means you're accepted in him just like Jesus was accepted of the Father. It means God looks down on you with the same willingness, the same desire, the same love, the same mercy, the same kindness, and the same power that he looked upon Jesus. If there could be a voice from heaven concerning you and only you, he said, this is my beloved son or my beloved daughter. That's what it means to be accepted in the beloved. It means to be equal, joint heirs with Christ, equal in every way. Let me ask you a question. If the Bible is true, and it is, but if the Bible is true where it says you are a joint heir with Christ, what does that mean Jesus is ahead of you in? There's only one thing, and that's accomplishment. He's ahead of you in that he's accomplished things on the cross that you and I need never accomplish, couldn't, and don't need to. But what else is he ahead of you in? You're a joint heir. Joint heir means equal heir. It means co-heir. If you've got two people that are co-heirs or joint heirs of an estate, that means they get an equal share. That means one doesn't get more than the other. That means they both get the same thing. That means if something is liquidated, then they split the money half and half, 50-50. When the Bible says that we're joint heirs with Christ, it means you are equal with Jesus in every way. Now, when I think about that, I don't want it to be that way because I recognize Jesus' sacrifice. I recognize his accomplishments. And so I think of it like, well, I don't want to be equal with Jesus because I want Jesus to have all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. He will. But as far as what belongs to us, and that's the part that I was talking about before, every second in eternity, we'll be praising Jesus for his accomplishments, for, his, for, for finishing the plan of redemption. God created the plan. He came up with the plan. Jesus accomplished it. The Holy Ghost reveals it. So every second in heaven, I mean, every time you see Jesus, I'm not sure exactly how this is going to work, but if Jesus is in a different part of heaven than you are, Every time you see him, you're going to be saying, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Now, in my natural thinking, that would get annoying. But God being God, somehow it's all going to work out. I don't know. So the things that we think naturally, the things that we think carnally about, well, we have to be careful because we want to make sure that we give Jesus the preeminent place. You don't have to worry about that. He will always have the preeminent place. Should now, but certainly will for eternity in heaven. So when the Bible talks about being joint heirs with Christ, equal heirs, co-heirs, and and really even the word inheritance where it talks about inheritance in a few more verses, it's the word heritage. In other words, it's saying just like Abraham's natural children were of his heritage and therefore 
recipients of his inheritance in the same way because you are in Christ accepted in the beloved. You're of God's heritage. There's no stepchild relationship here. There's no adoption relationship like we think of in the natural sense of adoption. It's true heritage. He's made you accepted in the beloved. Now, why? Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. How, how many of you appreciate, or in other words, want to be in the family of God? God wanted you more than you ever wanted him. God wanted you before you ever will want him. And here's the important part. Here's the, the staggering part to me. When you get to heaven and realize how wonderful everything is, when you see with your eyes wide open no hindrances of the flesh or the natural mind or the thinking or whatever, when you get to heaven and see what God's original plan of salvation and redemption was all about and see how wonderful it is, he still wanted you more than you wanted that. When you want the blessings of God in your life, when you want healing or you want God's provision or an answer to prayer, God still wants you to have it more than you ever want it. Because you're accepted and beloved. Jesus ever have any needs go unmet? How come? Because he was the son of God. He was the beloved. Should you ever have any needs go unmet? Not according to the word. Because you're accepted in the beloved. You've been chosen in him, folks. Chosen in him. Because of God's goodwill. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Open our eyes, Lord. We know that these verses, we've read these things before. We know these verses are coming to the place where Paul prays that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened that we would know what is the hope of your calling and the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints and the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. I pray that for us today, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the truth, open our eyes to all that you planned for us, all that Jesus accomplished and all that's been revealed. Thank you, Lord for your goodness, your mercy. Oh, there's so many times where we've had to rely on your mercy because we've been in the wrong. But you didn't hold that against us, Lord. You were merciful. You were kind. You didn't condemn us. There may have been consequences for what we did, but you didn't condemn us. You helped us according to your great mercy. Folks, Father, I pray that the mercy of God would be upon these people. That your mercy would be upon these people. That you would be merciful to show them the way out of the situations they're in because of your great love toward us. I pray, Father, that you would direct us by the Holy Ghost, order our steps, so that we would see what is your plan, your purpose, your will that would be satisfied to walk in that, not making our own way, 
but walking by the direction of the Holy Ghost. Father, reveal in us and to us who we really are and the place, the spiritual place, position of authority that you've given us that we might overcome all the works of the enemy wherever he raises his head. We ask these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. 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 Let's all stand together. Folks, I know this is not a real rip-roaring, hoot-and-holler, get-excited type service. The things that make the most difference to me are not the things that I get the most excited about. They're the things that, that, that have an impact on my heart. And these truths in Ephesians, I pray that they'd have an impact on our heart. I don't care if you get excited about it. I don't care if you go away saying, wow, wasn't that a great service? What I want is you to go away and say, wow, who knew God wanted me like that? That's what I'm after. Because the more we see God's love for us and what he's provided for us and who he's made us in Christ Jesus, that's when we become a threat to the enemy. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. We love you. Have a great day.